When I visited a church in Waterloo, uh, they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, and it's usually their practice to celebrate the Lord's Supper every single week of their life, or during the church. And after the bread was served, the cup was being served. And so I look forward to partaking of the element and remember Jesus' shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And after the pastor invited everyone to drink of the cup, I just gulped down what I had presumed to be grape juice. However, I was seriously shocked, seriously confused by the taste of that grape juice. And so I found out that I drank wine during, during that Sunday. And it's quite possible that it was my first time ever drinking wine in my life. So I'm not sure if you have experienced that in, when you visited different churches. But last Sunday, we covered John chapter 2, uh, where Jesus transformed water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And just I thought that, this nat- that that story naturally led to this specific topic on drinking wine and drinking alcohol and how we are to think about it as Christians. And so we'll step away from our normal expository preaching where we, will, where we usually unfold the passage of the Bible sequentially and just do a more of a, a topical message. And there are really four pastoral reasons why I am addressing this topic. First, the Bible clearly talks about this topic and why it matters for Christians. And so we want to be absolutely biblical about it, as we should be with all topics of the Bible. And second, perhaps some of you have a conclusion of of this topic. Uh, Some of you may have a strong opinion on it. But others of you may not know what the Bible teaches about this topic of alcohol. And so if, you're, if you aren't learning this topic from the Bible, then you may find yourself learning about it from the world or from your peers. And if you have a strong opinion about this, then, but it's not grounded in the Bible, then I would encourage you to be open to the whole counsel of God's word. And the third pastoral reason is that this topic can be sensitive because alcoholism has led to other serious consequences. And fourth, scripture offers hope and forgiveness to those who are enslaved to alcoholism. And so really my heart and my aim for this message is to really help us understand what the Bible teaches about alcohol. Because scripture is our ultimate authority and we are to place our experience and our church tradition and our own opinion under this authority. And so the style of today's message will be a little bit different. It will be kind of like an E2 class on Bible, on Bible and alcohol, except it won't be a two-hour message as you would att- if you attend an E2 class with Dr. Herb in the Old Testament. It's usually a two-hour class, but we're not going to go for two hours. But, uh, but I have intentionally packed a lot of information and data in this message so there will be a lot of verses and there will be a lot of terms that I'll use so I would encourage you if you brought notebooks or maybe just type things on your phone I would encourage you to take notes if you are interested in learning more about this topic and so and that by God's grace may you be thoroughly equipped with scripture so that you will be able to navigate this issue in your own personal life now all Christians would agree that getting drunk is a sin. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 is as, as clear as ever 
do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. I don't know any Christians who would say that drunkenness is not a sin. But Christians in the present and even in history uh, have disputes on alcohol consumption for Christians. And historically, there are generally three Christian views toward alcohol. There's the prohibitionist. So this position claims that the scripture absolutely prohibits uh, alcoholic beverages for all Christians. And not only that, uh, some, of, some of the prohibitionist position would even go so far in saying that they want to outlaw the traffic of and distribution of alcohol. There's a second view, and that is the abstentionist. The abstentionist, or if you want to be simpler, is the abstinence view. Uh, and that is this position claims that the alcoholic beverages are not, expressive, are not expressly forbidden in the Bible, and, but yet it is wise for all Christians to refrain from using them. There is the moderationist view, and that is this position claims that the use of alcoholic beverages is acceptable in the Bible for all Christians if used moderately. And so I hope that as we unfold some of the passages in the Bible, we'll discover which view best aligns with the Word of God. Now, just kind of off, off the bat here and to say that this is a tertiary issue, meaning that whichever view you land on, it should not be, a, it should not be an issue that divides Christians. It should not be an issue that divides Christians. We may all land differently on this issue. And so if we have different views on this, then we are to, we, then we are to be gracious uh, towards one another. Now, the word alcohol is not used in the Bible, but it does use words like wine and strong drink and other terms. However, I chose to use the word alcohol because it just broadens the classification of alcoholic beverages that will include beer, whiskey, sake, etc. And so the best place to start our study is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Now, you have a list of words here. The Old Testament has about seven Hebrew words that refer to alcoholic beverages. Now, I don't plan to do all the word studies here, but I've included the, uh, the, the Hebrew words and the transliteration for you to go home and study, or you can just take a picture of this and just do your own study. But, all the, but this list of Hebrew words all mention alcoholic beverages. But the most important word is the first one. And that is the word yayin, yayin, which is translated as wine. And this word is used 139 times in the Old Testament, and 95% of the time is translated as wine. And so yayin is a fermented wine, meaning it's alcoholic. And the first ever mention of yayin is in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 where this wine intoxicated Noah. So we see here in Genesis 9, 20, 21, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. It's also the same wine that Lot's daughters used to intoxicate their father. And it's a very bizarre passage where incest is involved here. And so we see here in Genesis 19, verses 32 to 33, where the daughters say, Come, let's make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. 
So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And notice the effect. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. That, that probably describes what having a hangover or blackout is like in the ancient world, just not remembering anything. Yet it is the same wine that Melchizedek offered to Abraham. We see here that Melchizedek, king of Balaam, brought out bread and wine to Abraham as a way to bless him. And if you study Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and Hebrews chapter 7, Melchizedek is a type that prefigures or or foreshadows our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And just as Melchizedek offered bread and wine to Abraham, so our Lord Jesus Christ offered bread symbolizing his body and the cup symbolizing his blood to save his people. And furthermore, God commanded his people to offer Yahim as a drink offering in worship as part of their burnt offering. Exodus chapter 29 verse 40 says at the end that they are to offer a fourth, that is a quarter of a hint of wine for a drink offering. So it just sounds like God has no problem with wine being used in the context of sacrificial offering in the temple. Now, this word yayin can also be God's blessing. It actually can be God's gift to be enjoyed by his people. There's a chapter here, there's a chapter in Psalm 104 that praises God for his provision and that man is responsible for cultivating the specific things which God has provided and enjoy God's blessed provision. So the psalmist says and praises God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. And then later on in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7, King Solomon, whom I presume would have written Ecclesiastes, tells the young man to find enjoyment in life whenever he can. And so King Solomon tells this young man, Go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. And so those are just a few examples of how yayin, wine, is referenced in the Old Testament. And depending on the context, the term can have both positive connotation and negative connotations. There is another Hebrew word that I'll briefly mention, and that is the word sikar. Sikar and is translated as strong drink. Uh, there is a, this word is often mentioned alongside of yayin, so don't drink wine and strong drink. And this word, sakar, actually contains more alcohol content than a wine, than yayin. And God instructed the Israelites through Moses to offer him sakar, strong drink, as an offering. And it says here in Numbers 28, verse 7, its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hin for each lamp. In the holy place, you shall pour out a strong drink of uh, a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. And later on in Deuteronomy, this strong drink was also to be joyfully consumed as celebratory occasions, such as weddings and worship. So Moses wrote to the Israelites, "Spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink." whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, 
you and your household. Now, there is a Hebrew word. There's a specific Hebrew word that was not listed in the seven, seven Hebrew words. There's a Hebrew word that talks about grape juice, and it's actually non-alcoholic, and it's called mishra, mishra. And interestingly enough, this word is only used once in the Old Testament, and it's found in Numbers chapter 6, whereby God has given instructions uh, and prohibitions on a man who makes a Nazarite vow. You notice at the end it says here, he shall drink no vinegar made from wine, yain, or, or strong drink, sikar, and shall not drink any juice of grapes, so that's mishra, or eat grapes fresh or dried. Now, so that's the Old Testament. Now let's move to the New Testament here. So in the New Testament, there are four Greek words that refer to alcoholic beverages. And the Greek word that I want to focus on is the first one, which is oinos, since it is used 34 times in the New Testament. And I would contend that this word always means uh, fermented beverage. It's alcoholic. It's the same word that was used five times in John chapter 2 that we studied last Sunday, uh, where Mary told Jesus we, that the wedding ran out of wine, it ran out of oinos. And it's also a place where Jesus turned water into oinos, and where the master of the feast drank and tasted oinos, wine. And it's also the same word used in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, where John the Baptist will commit himself to the Nazarite vow by not drinking wine or strong drink, which is also another word for the alcoholic beverage. And it's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5, where Christians are not to get drunk with wine. Now, there's a type of drink that is debated among scholars which is the fruit of the vine, the fruit of the vine. And this phrase was used in the context of the institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke 22. And Jesus essentially said to his disciples that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so what is the fruit of the vine referring to? It's referring to grape vine. And it's actually used in James chapter 3, verse 12. And it's also used in Revelation chapter 14, verses 18 to 19. And the grapevine is then used to produce grape juice for consumption. Now, the question that gets debated is whether the fruit of the vine is, was fermented or unfermented. And hence, as I mentioned in my beginning of my sermon, in my experience with the church at, uh, in Waterloo, I drank wine during the Lord's Supper because some denominations and some tr church traditions can make a case that the fruit of the vine can possibly be fermented, but it can also possibly be uh, unfermented. And most of the churches that I have, I have personally visited usually serve grape juice and not wine during the Lord's Supper, and such is our practice here at OBC. And the reason why I bring up the fruit of the vine is just simply to make you aware of an ongoing discussion within Christianity. But I don't think Christians should be too dogmatic about, you know, what's in the cup. Is it, should it be wine that symbolizes the blood of Jesus, or should it be the grape juice? What I think is the most important is not if the cup should be wine or grape juice, 
but the substance behind it. What is the meaning behind it? Which is the new covenant, right? The new covenant in Jesus' blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And when we take the cup, we remember what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for our sins. Also, alcohol during that time had medicinal benefits. Uh, the ancient world did not have clean water like ours in Vancouver. And so if you, if you read later on in the New Testament, you find a, pa- a, a single verse in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, whereby Paul gave an instruction to his disciple Timothy, who was dealing with constant health problems and bodily ailments. And so Paul tells him, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine, oinos, for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And this was important for Timothy because as he was dealing with health problems, that would affect his ministry. And so, he want, and so Paul wants, to, wants Timothy to be as healthy as possible and get rid of all these harmful things that are in his body. So the little wine could have been used to disinfect the harmful things that were in Timothy so that he could recover from his bodily ailments. And so having broadly examined the words in the Old Testament and the New Testament on alcoholic beverages, it would be beneficial to, rep- to address some practical questions. Does the Bible prohibit alcohol consumption? Yes and no. Yes, but only to some groups of people in specific situations in the Bible. You can, you can look at Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9, where Moses says, or God says to uh, Moses, drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you. Oh, actually speaking to Aaron here. And when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statue forever throughout your generations. Now, in order to understand this verse, you need to understand the context of Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10 began with God punishing Aaron's sons to death because they offered unauthorized fire or strange fire that God did not command them to do. Now, although the text does not say it, I'm just guessing here that it is a possibility that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, might have drank wine before they went on their priestly duties. And and hence, they failed to perform their duties accurately. And that's why later on here in verse 9, God told Aaron, who represents the Levitical priesthood, that he and his sons will not drink wine or strong drink. And therefore, all priests were prohibited from drinking when they go and do their priestly duties in the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle. So it made sense for priests not to drink while on duty so that they can faithfully carry out their responsibilities. The danger of them drinking is that it could lead to them to making bad decisions when handling the sacred things of God. Just imagine a pastor having a few drinks before coming to the pulpit to preach and handle God's holy word. That'll be, that will be not wise. Now, returning to Numbers chapter 6, those who take the Nazarite vow were to refrain from alcoholic beverage. Uh, and not, not just that, but cutting their hair, 
and also attending a funeral. They were not supposed to go there as well. But they were to do so in order to demonstrate that they were consecrated to God, that they were set apart to devote themselves and their time to serving God until they complete their vow. Notice it says here in verse 3 that they were not supposed to drink or do any, any of these things. Now, we don't know how, many, how long they were supposed to keep their vow for. Um, it, it could have been a short time. It could have been a long time. But when they have fulfilled their vows, notice if you read the context of number 6, they must bring the f- sacrificial offerings, like a lamp, to the door of the tabernacle and present it to the priest. And then the priest here in verse 20 will wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite, what does it say? May drink what? Wine. So even the Nazarites, even though they made a vow, they were not prohibited forever from drinking wine, only at a certain time in the period of their life. Next, Proverbs 31. That chapter is often understood as the excellent woman passage. However, that's only in verses 10 to 31. Because the Proverbs 31 begins with King Lemuel, with King Lemuel, who recalls the instruction given to him by his mother. You see, kings were not to drink wine or strong drink. They were not to drink yayin or sakar. And so here in verses 45 says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. So why are kings not to drink? Kings were not to drink so that their judgment would not be impaired or clouded by wine or strong drinks so that they can protect and perform justice for those who are afflicted and oppressed. Just imagine our prime minister or the president in the United States took a few drinks before making a critical and dire decision that would affect so many people. Sometimes I wonder if they drank before writing and passing bills and laws for the nations. So, so those are the, those sort of examples in the Old Testament, those three groups of people that were prohibited from drinking wine at a certain time in their life. Now let's look at the New Testament. Now in the New Testament, there is Besides John the Baptist, who took the Nazarite vow, there is actually no mention of Christians uh, who are, there's no mention of prohibiting Christians from drinking, but nor are they commanded to drink. However, we should bear in mind of Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 2, where Paul says to the Christians, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. What does this have to do with alcohol? Well, God commands Christians to submit to the law of the government, and according to British Columbia, the legal age to drink and buy alcohol is the age of 19. So if you, call, so if you are a Christian, you're prohibited from buying and drinking alcohol under age 19. And additionally, it is against the law to drink and drive. I don't know if I need to say more about that, but you can understand why. It caused a lot of devastation in the lives of, in, in lives. And so we're given 
So how, do, how, do we, how should we answer the question? I don't think this is my conviction in my, my, my position. I don't believe the Bible forbids Christians from drinking alcohol. But the question is, the question is not can Christians drink alcohol because we established the Bible does not forbid. But the question is this, should Christians drink alcohol? Should they do it? And this is where you need to discern for yourself. You need to discern carefully and wisely for yourself. You see, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addressed various topics to the Corinthians, uh, one of which was, the, was that the Christians in Corinth were exercising their freedom and their liberty uh, in Christ. And in that context, the issue was eating and purchasing meat that was offered to idols. And some of the Corinthian Christians thought that, oh, it's okay to just buy meat and, and eat meat offered to idols because really those idols don't really have real existence. It doesn't matter. Whereas there are some Christians in that church who are really sensitive because they came out of paganism from their idolatry. And so to them, eating meat offered to idols was a bad thing. And so they would not want to eat, nor would they want to be pressured from eating. And then the Corinthians then created a slogan where they say, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. Everything's permissible for me. It means that the Corinthians have the right, the authority, and the permission to have everything that the body craves for, even buying meat and eating meat offered to idols. And then Paul responds to them with a rebuke and admonition that, yes, all things are lawful for me, but here's the thing. Not all things are helpful, and not all things uh, can build up one another. And not only that, I don't want to be enslaved. I don't want to be dominated by anything. And so while Paul has the liberty and freedom to enjoy all the things that are legal, the principle is that a believer's freedom is to be limited to that which is profitable to the Lord and for edifying others. And so let's apply that principle of limiting your freedom in the context of drinking alcohol. And here are some questions you should ask yourself as a way to apply wisdom and discernment for yourself. Question is, like, would it be beneficial for you to drink alcohol? Would it cause others to stumble? Especially to those who are trying to overcome alcoholism or even have a history of alcoholism. Romans 14, 21 says that it's not good to eat, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother and sister to stumble. Would it violate your conscience? Like, if you do not feel comfortable drinking, drinking, then it is wise to listen to your own conscience and renounce the offer when someone offers it to you. Would it hinder your relationship with Jesus? Are you doing it for the glory of God? Would it enslave you to sin? Because oftentimes, people who drink alcohol, they get addicted or enslaved to alcohol. Would it set a godly example for others? You see, personally, after having said all that, personally, I take the abstinence position because I think it strikes a biblical balance between prohibitionist and moderationist. Like I said, I'm not against Christians drinking. And that's because I don't believe the Bible strictly prohibits the drinking of alcohol. I can make an argument, which I don't plan to make today. However, I personally don't go out of my way to 
drink. I am very content without them. I don't need them. I would rather spend money on drinking other things. And hence, I'm practically not a moderationist. However, I'll just go on record and say this, that there are exceptional occasions. There are, there are, there are very rare exceptional occasions if, for instance, example, if my family members, they, they come to my house, we, we, want to be we want to be hospitable, and they bring a bottle of wine, and they offer it to me, then it doesn't violate my conscience. I have no issue with that. I will graciously accept it, but only a small portion, and just enjoy this type of beverage with everyone to the glory of God. I think that's okay position. However, I, think, I still think abstinence position is the best way because, first, the Bible doesn't prohibit it, and yet, on the other hand, we want to be careful because it can lead towards danger if we, if, if we take the moderate position. And so having said that, I also want to expound on Ephesians 5.18 about should Christians drink alcohol? Should Christians drink alcohol? You see, remember the verse, it says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, right? But you need to understand the whole entire context, a wider context to consider when applying the command of not drinking wine or get drunk with wine. See, Ephesians 1 to 8 talks about the gospel of our salvation and how God saved us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, if, and then chapters 4 to 6 of Ephesians talks about the implications and the applications of the gospel. In other words, since God saved us through Jesus Christ, how are we to live in light, in light of that reality? How are we to live as Christians in light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross? And there's a single word that is mentioned four times that is interwoven through the implication and application of the gospel, and that is the word walk. Walk. It means how you are to conduct your life and how you are to behave as a Christian. See, Ephesians 4 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians 4 17 says, now, I, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And in Ephesians 5 Two, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And finally, the fourth time the word walk is mentioned is just right before the verse where, God, where, where Paul commands us not to get drunk with wine. Verses 15 to 18, we're exhorted and commanded to look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so in the immediate context, Paul exhorts believers to be careful of how they walk as Christians. They're to walk as wise people, by making the best use of the time. Why? Because we're living in the last days. The days are evil. We're living in a world that's corrupt and sinful. We've got to be careful. Therefore, because the days are evil, we're commanded not to be foolish and not get drunk with wine. 
but to know the will of the Lord and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit so that we will be able to discern what the will of the Lord is for our lives and to live wisely for his glory. You see, Scripture is so clear, crystal clear. It's a commandment that we are not to get drunk with wine. And that there should be, there should not be, it should never be any situation or even circumstance where Christians are to get drunk with wine. Because being drunk with wine can lead to debauchery, which means living wildly or momentarily living a life of reckless abandon. And so in the last section of my sermon, I want to talk about the danger of drunkenness, the danger of drunkenness. And I want, and I want to break it up into five headings. And the first heading is this, the nature of drunkenness. The nature of drunkenness. See, the nature of drunkenness is when someone is, is intoxicated by alcohol. They have consumed excessively beyond their limitations. And so that situation puts them in a state where their body and their mind are affected physiologically, psychologically, and behaviorally, which leads me to the second heading, the effects of drunkenness. The effects of drunkenness. See, alcohol consumption can, even though the Bible has a lot of good things to say about it, it's a blessing, it's a gift from the Lord, it is to, use, it is to be enjoyed for the glory of God, but we must remember that alcohol consumption can alter the mind and behavior. It can affect you physiologically, psychologically, and behaviorally. It impairs your ability to make decisions, and it actually changes your perception. It impairs your motor skills. You lose balance. You lose coordination. You lose reaction times. That's why you see drunkards, they sway left and right. That's how you know when someone's drunk. And intoxication can alter your consciousness, leading you to a state of confusion, disorientation, and blackouts. It can affect your behavior that may be out of character. Uh, this, that might explain why there, are, there tends to be brawling in the bar. People have a few drinks, they want to pick a fight with someone. And just, just, just FYI, those who are drunk, are those who do not admit that they are drunk, or they don't even want to admit that they drank too much. And that's when you know someone is drunk. And alcoholism has health implications, including liver disease and heart problems and addiction. And as Christians, and as Christians, none of us should be surprised by the effects of alcoholism and drunkenness. Those effects aren't just, aren't just explained absurd through modern science, but the wisdom of Scripture clearly speaks on those effects. 3,000 years ago, Proverbs 20, 20 verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And then there's a, there's a passage here in Proverbs 23 verses 29 to 35, that could be in a sermon of itself on the perils of drunkenness. It says here, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? That is like someone got punched in the eye. Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, 
Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. It says here, in the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. So this explains broadly the consequences of alcoholism. And it says here in verse 33, your eyes will see strange things. This talks about impaired perception. And your heart utter perverse things. So when someone's drunk, they say ridiculous things. And verse 34, you will be like one. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the, of a, of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. This was a notoriously unstable place to stay on a ship. Hence, this describes the unstableness of a drunkard. These drunkards will say, they struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When, I sh- when shall I awake? I must have another drink. So if you want to know the passage on the perils of drunkenness, read Proverbs 23, verses 29-35 again and study it for yourself. So having talked about the, the effects of drunkenness, I want to talk about the consequence of drunkenness. Have you ever thought carefully through the consequence of drunkenness? I mean, we just talked about the safety risks, right, such as impaired driving that cause a lot of accidents and a lot of deaths in the world. But not only that, alcoholism and drunkenness has ruined families and ruined marriages all over the world. And then husbands who get into alcoholism become very abusive in the family. That's a consequence. And then kids and children and wives are damaged and hurt by, that, by the effects of alcoholism. And not only that, alcoholism can lead towards the abandonment of morality. Uh, we just talked about how the priests and the, Levi- and the kings were not to drink wine while on duty so that they can exercise their responsibilities with sober judgment. Well, but what about church leaders? What about church leaders? What about the pastors? What about the deacons? What about the elders? You see, the consequence of drunkenness for any church leaders is disqualification from the office. See, the Apostle Paul wrote these passages to Timothy and to Titus about appointing biblically qualified men who desire the office of pastors, elders, and overseer. It says that that these people are not to get drunk with wine. First Timothy 3, verses 2 to 3 says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard. Same thing, same thing in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. An overseer, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard. The same goes for deacons, servants of the Lord. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. So that's a consequence. There are a lot of consequences that I can list. But I want to really look at the next one as well. That is the condemnation of drunkenness. The condemnation of drunkenness. See, the New Testament has really strong indictments against drunkards. That those who are drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. They're heading, drunkards are heading towards the path of hell and eternal condemnation. 
And then I want you to listen to these warnings. And I want you to notice that, the, that being a drunkard, drunkenness, is listed alongside of other vile sins. And I pray that as I read these verses, that they will sober you up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And it says here in Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity. I'll just jump to verse 21. Envy, drunkenness. Orgies and things like these. I warn you, as Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, drunkenness, being a drunkard is a characteristic of an of a un, unbeliever. And if you're in the habit of getting drunk by alcohol, you've got to examine your own heart right now. Examine your own self to see whether or not if you're truly saved you might be no different from the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, Paul gives a believers, he gives believers a rather harsh and yet wise instruction about those who claim the name of Christ but is a drunkard and committing other vile sins. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So in other words, Christians cannot fellowship with anyone who call themselves Christians and yet fall into drunkenness. They're not to do so, so as to not taint the name of Christ and give public approval of the drunkards. You see, Paul's indictment, or even the New Testament teaching, indictment against drunkenness, it's not a slap on the wrist. This is serious business. This is a matter of heaven and hell. It's a matter of life and death. However, there is hope. There is hope, which is why I'm going to talk about the remedy, the remedy of drunkenness. And if you are a drunkard, or you know someone who's a drunkard, then know that the scripture also offers remedy and hope for drunkards. See, after Paul wrote to the Corinthians that drunkards and other sins cannot inherit the, inherit eternal, uh, the kingdom of God, he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, the Corinthians did not get their remedy to their alcoholism from AA, Alcoholic Anonymous, they got their remedy, their cure from the good news of Jesus Christ. See, some of the Corinthians were alcoholics before they came to know Jesus. And after they believed in the gospel, they sadly somehow, for whatever reason, they fell back into drunkenness because of the influence of their ungodly society that practiced and praised drunkenness and wild parties. And then the Apostle Paul then admonishes and reminds them that they're no longer what they used to be. 
they're washed. They've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. They've been sanctified. They've been made holy. They've become saints before Christ. They've been justified by faith. They've been justified, meaning because of what Jesus Christ has done, they're now guiltless before holy and righteous God. Not because, not because they are good or anything, but because of the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed into sinners' accounts. That's why they can stand before God, the holy God, justified because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, be encouraged that there is forgiveness of sins, that there is grace from our Lord Jesus Christ. There is hope. There is freedom. Freedom from sin. There is freedom from enslavement to the bondage of alcoholism. Then the good news is not only for alcoholics or drunkards, but for all sinners. For all sinners who have not repented of their sins. And for all sinners who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are not a Christian this morning, then know that you can find freedom in Christ. You can find forgiveness of, uh, forgiveness of sin through, or through Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross and through his resurrection. And if you want to learn, if you need help, if you need assistance, come talk to me. I'll have to talk to you. Tell you what Jesus has done on the cross and how you can be set free from enslavement to sin. And if God, if, if you're listening to this, and God has delivered you from this from slavery of alcoholism, then we want to praise God. God can do miracles. He can save. He can set the captives free. And so, in conclusion, let me just try my best to summarize what the Bible teaches about alcohol. Based on the Old Testament and New Testament, Christians are free to enjoy God's blessings, including wine, but they, are, they must not engage in drunkenness. That's very clear. And that when it comes to alcohol, Christians must approach alcohol with sober wisdom, remembering that it tends to lead to drunkenness. So we must be wise on this issue. And furthermore, last, furthermore, Scripture has warnings and condemnation on drunkenness, and yet Scripture also gives us hope and remedy through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so that's the summary, and I hope that has been instructive and helpful for all of you. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that this message will sober our minds and our hearts on this topic. I pray and I ask that you would give us wisdom in the days to come. Help us to be wise as we are living in the last days. The days are evil. The days are evil. And we recognize that we are not to be foolish, but to live a life that, uh, that aligns with your will. And, and Lord, I ask that uh, even through this topic, may, may it instruct us to live wisely in how we can handle this issue in our own personal lives. And when presented before us, help us to think through some questions before we partake in uh, the blessing that you've given us. And, 
and even and, and whether or not if we take it or not, may we do so all for your glory and in good conscience. But at the end of the day, if some of us have foolishly bought into the idea of, of getting drunk is a good thing, to waste their life, I ask that we will repent of our sins and find forgiveness in Christ and, and bow before him before the throne of grace and receive grace and forgiveness. But it's not just a sin of alcoholism, but it's also other sins in our own life. Because Jesus, you died for all of our sins. Die for our sins so that our sins can be forgiven by faith and to be reconciled to you. Oh God, I ask that you will help us to recognize all the more what the free gift of salvation means, about, means for us. Help us to walk wisely, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord every day of our lives. And help us to be consistent at the same time with the teachings of your scripture. Um, help us not to be influenced by the world, but be influenced by your word and that we submit ourselves under your authority every day. So help us to apply this truth into our own lives, into our own Christian life. Not because it makes us any better, but it, does, but it, is, it is evidence of what you have done for us. So help us to bear good fruit for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.